The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book One The Voyage South Prologue Ancient, round-shouldered mountains met the sea only a little south of where winter held the ocean ice-clad the whole year long. Along the coastline, where harbours were few and hard to find, jagged rocks combed the breakers, grinding at shards of wood that might once have been ships. A double handful of small, blunt-bowed fishing-boats worked their way across the wind towards a gap in the cliffs that only they knew was there. As each boat rose to the crest of a wave, the men aboard sometimes caught a glimpse of their companions' hulls, but more often they saw only dark sails, wind-bent on the same course. As they drew closer to land, the deep-throated roar of breakers on the cliffs drowned the skipper's shouts when they turned downwind to thread a needle's eye of broken water between black headlands silhouetted against the evening sky. For a tense moment each boat hung on the wave that its skipper had chosen to surf through the narrow gap. Then, one by one, they rode the breakers between the headlands, and were suddenly out of both wind and waves, and only needed to avoid a tidal whirlpool before they were into protected water. Ahead of them was a bay the shape of a man's hand, with four narrow fjords like splayed fingers probing the forested mountainsides that fell steeply into the dark water below. The boats turned south into the fifth and broadest of the fjords, where the mountains drew back, leaving a somewhat gentler slope, where the fishermen had lived for so many generations that the first settlers had long been forgotten. Within the shadow of the encircling highlands, the fishing-boats eased through calm water, black as the rocky heights above. They slid towards the wooden wharves of the village, heading for their allotted places, furling their home-made sails as they went. Where a stream made its final downhill rush into the salty bay, bait-shacks and boat-houses stood half on land, half on wooden pilings driven into the rocky bottom. As they neared the shore, the men glanced up at their cottages of stone and weathered grey wood that looked over each other's rooftops down to the water's edge. Smoke from the chimneys rose almost straight up into the evening air until it escaped the lee of the sheltering cliffs, briefly caught the last light, and was swept away by the wind. It was near nightfall in the village when the fleet was secured and the crews went ashore. Orange light from oil lamps spilled into the darkness as doors opened to receive the sailors home. Inshore, higher than the last semicircle of dwellings, the stream chuckled over stones as it left the forest. There, high above the village, within the sound of running water, was a level space where the village cemetery grew a little larger every year to make room for the winter's dead. Higher still, the rocky crest was a black line against the twilight sky. In the shadows, where gravestones outnumbered the people living in the village below, there were more markers in the ground than there had been bodies carried up the hill. Lost at sea. 
repeated like a melancholy chorus echoing down the years, each of which had seen the little boats sail out of the harbour into the ocean, some never to return. If the fate of most men of the village was to follow the sea until it caught them, the role of women was equally circumscribed. Their lot was to become a sailor's wife, and too often his widow. Some would live to see their grandchildren, some would die bringing another sailor into the world, or perhaps a woman destined to tend house and wait hopefully for her seafaring husband's return. However, the sea yielded fish, and the forest grew wood for boats in which to take the catch, and for most of the villagers there was security, and even some contentment, in knowing their fate. They were untroubled by the rest of the world which had long forgotten them. Daily life within the cycle of the seasons was enough. Few wondered about what might be away, or what could have happened before, since none of them knew the answers. Their lives were not easy, but because they depended on each other in times of hardship, they also shared the brief moments of joy. There were always songs in the village, and dancing as well, both when the men came home and for practice while they were away. Singers could rhyme the night away with so many songs to stir body and spirit that a tune was seldom repeated unless someone insisted on a reprise. There were songs of love, of longing, and of lovers parted by the sea. There were joking songs that grew longer with the doings of villagers past and present, songs of mourning, and songs whose origin and meaning were obscure. Of all the singers in the village, none sang so sweetly as Alanna. And like most of the villagers, who were sturdy and fair or red-haired, she was tall and slim with long hair as brown and shiny as a freshly peeled nut. Her eyes were by sunlight's blue, by others almost green. Alanna grew from a thin, willowy girl blessed only with a voice, to a young woman who stood somewhat apart from the rest of the village. Perhaps because her life had been darkened by the death of both her parents when she was young, there was a touch of sadness in the way she went about her life in an uncle's house quietly helping her aunt, with four children young enough to be her own nieces and nephews. Young men sometimes sighed for Alanna, but they did not approach her. She was as much a part of their lives as the stream that ran through the village, but she remained remote as its source in the forested mountains. They were all touched by the richness of her voice and the simple elegance with which she sang, when she was called upon to sing the long and difficult laments so much loved by the older folk of the village, many of the men wiped the corners of their eyes, and women wept openly. When she sang of love, the young men's hearts were inflamed, and even the most boisterous of them became tongue-tied and awkward in her presence. One evening, as she was watching the fleet return on the evening tide, a black-haired stranger was carried from the last boat. The skipper, Roaring Jack, Alanna's uncle by marriage, had seen the man's dismasted and rudderless skiff being tossed by an onshore wind towards the cliffs, and it was Scar Arm Ian, known as Skarm, who had hauled the castaway almost lifeless from the sea. At first the villagers thought the stranger dumb, 
was so shocked by his ordeal that he had lost the power of speech. Skarm, whose wife had died in childbirth many years before, cared for the sailor in his own cottage. The healers visited them daily, taking care of him despite his long black hair and dark complexion so different from their own. When days passed into weeks, and he was able to walk down to the village wharf, where all could see him, it was apparent that he could speak, though with an accent and intonation different from the plain talk of the village. With Skarm's help he soon learned to understand, and make himself understood, but he remained economical with words, even compared to sailors who spoke only when there was good reason for it. The villagers called him Stranger, since that was close enough to the outlandish name he offered them. "'Twould be a fine thing if you could tell us from whence he came,' remarked one of his crewmates, Red Ian, so named to distinguish him from his uncle, Scar-Arm Ian. "'He has a lot more to say than my relatives in the cemetery,' said Skarm, "'but not by a lot.' In fact, Skarm knew more than he told. He kept the stranger's secrets, because much of what he had heard were the whisperings and mutterings of someone at the edge of consciousness making his way back to life. Skarm's silence was not difficult to maintain, because he was the keeper of many secrets, and had the habit of guarding his tongue. He kept the villagers' born and buried book, which, among other things, recorded who was related to whom, particularly when neither was wed to the other. He approved the relationships that he judged to be sufficiently separated, and discreetly ensured that nobody inadvertently married a half-brother or sister. His own secret was a collection of books, from both away and before that dated from a time when ships visited the village regularly, coming across the seas and oceans, voyaging far from the sight of land. Skarm and the stranger soon recognized that neither gossiped, and so Skarm answered questions about the village and its families, and gave the stranger leave to read as he wished, even within the born and buried book, where he had encoded much more than its name suggested. Even though the villagers did not accept the stranger as one of their own, they approved, when he fitted into the villagers' work without friction or disturbance, first helping with the mending of nets and boats, then joining the village boys as they fished for bait in the fjord, and then, as he recovered strength, taking a place in the boat that had rescued him. Roaring Jack took him aboard the Molly, where, after a week's fishing, the big-voiced skipper declared, He's handy. The few who did not hear Roaring Jack's approval knew his judgment in less than a day. As the weeks passed, the mothers, aunts, and grandmothers of the village conducted their own appraisal of the stranger whenever they met for weaving, sewing, and gossip. Though the stranger and Alanna were together no more than was explicable by the course of the day's work, their secret was revealed even before they knew it themselves and after Roaring Jack's mother told her friends that she had seen Alanna and the stranger standing together much closer than was necessary for spreading fish on the drying racks, their love was hidden no longer. So it was that the quiet man, who seldom answered with more than the gleam of a smile, began to open his mind and heart to the young, green-eyed woman, speaking to her in a different way from his conversations with Skarm. 
and because of her own apartness from the unmarried women, she guarded every word he said to her. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. The season passed from fall to winter. The village made all secure against the storms, pulled the boats up on shore, and prepared to endure the snow and cold. Ice formed on the fjord, and spray froze onto the rocks at the harbour mouth. During the brief brightness of the midwinter feast, Alanna and the stranger began keeping company in the formal manner of the village. They sat together, danced, and stole glances as the village wives and grandmothers kept them decorously apart in the decent traditions handed down over the generations, an arrangement that let the villagers discuss the couple's every move. Gradually the villagers began to see destiny in the union of the silent, black-haired man and the lonely young woman who sang. The two seldom spoke in the presence of others, but the couple's closeness warmed the hearts of those who remembered their own courtships while the unmarried men envied at a distance too great for jealousy. When the last icicles dropped from the eaves, and the grass pushed up its green spears, the stranger and Alanna exchanged vows. At the wedding feast almost everyone tried to remember his foreign-sounding name, but none could get his tongue around it. Skarm, who conducted the ceremony, tried to copy the strange sounds, but even though the stranger had written his name down for him, the best Skarm could do was Astrea. In the midst of the exchange of promises, the stranger slipped a silvery bracelet from his arm and put it on Alanna's. The elder's disapproving stares silenced the whisper of questions and comments that followed, but they too were curious. During and after the feasting, singing, and dancing that followed, most of the villagers had something to say about the unusual marriage gift. When they asked Skarm what it might be, since he was the one who had had the best opportunity to see the shiny object, he only shrugged. 
Alanna was proud of the gift, but did not display it to the admiring group of wives of which she was now a member. They had to content themselves with glimpses of a silver band, as wide as a man's three largest fingers, in which was a dark green stone caged in a curiously wrought setting. No one asked Alanna or Astraea directly, because even though their union had been duly blessed and approved by all, he still remained the stranger, and consequently she, too, was estranged. All that spring and summer, when he went to sea, she never failed to climb to the headland at both his parting and return. When the little boats caught the morning wind and followed each other through the narrow passage between the headlands, she would stand on a rocky shelf below the cliff-top, her shining hair blowing in the wind, one arm raised in farewell. Each evening, after the day's work was done, they walked home hand in hand. When he was ashore, the stranger worked to patch and strengthen a cottage that had stood empty for many years, high above most of the village. Each time he returned he found that Alanna had moved the work onward while he was away. By the end of summer they moved into their new home together, where they completed the task of making it weather-tight and well-stocked against the coming winter. When the storms struck and the snow lay knee-deep on each side of the trampled paths, they were happy together. The year turned through the short days and bitter nights until another spring returned, bringing with it the preparing of boats for the summer's fishing. When the little fleet first ventured forth to replenish larders empty except for a few leathery salted fish, Alanna was on the headland to wave farewell. When all but one of the fleet returned she walked to her cottage alone and silent. When the last boat appeared through the gap in the cliffs the village heard a terrible scream in the twilight. Soon after torches flickered on the stranger's body, laid out on the wharf, between the baskets of gleaming silvery fish. A day later, when Alanna followed her husband's body to the cemetery, her once shining dark hair was streaked with white. Since all had suffered a similar loss, the villagers respected Alanna's grief. However, their sympathy waned as the months passed and she showed no signs of abandoning her mourning and seeking a new husband. Those who came to share her sorrow were few, and when she would not rejoin the life of the village she found herself alone. Accordingly, hardly anyone noticed that she carried the stranger's child until the birth was imminent. By chance the year had seen an unusual number of pregnancies, so the midwife did not know Alanna's condition until she was called to help with the delivery. She clucked her cheeks and shook her head, because she had not been able to provide the charms and advice she gave the other expectant mothers in the village. Fortunately, Alanna's solitary life had not harmed her, and she delivered a healthy son, with hair as black as the stranger's, and as curly as his had been straight. Alanna's Aunt Molly, Roaring Jack's wife, was present at the birth, and watched over mother and son with care and enthusiasm. The months passed, eventually exceeding the year that the village respected both as a time for recovery from childbirth and a proper period of mourning. Now, said the villagers, she'll be sensible, and find herself a man to be father to her child. 
they encouraged the few widowers to court her, but Alanna politely and firmly refused their suits. The villagers gossiped about this departure from time-honoured tradition and her female duty to bring forth as many children as she was able. Some older women bent their grey heads together and whispered words like, selfish and unwomanly. The men who once watched and admired her now turned aside from Alanna as she continued to refuse what all thought was her obvious destiny. Quietly, but with absolute finality, she ignored what everyone but she regarded as her obligation, and instead set about making herself indispensable to the village as a seamstress of such skill that even though all disapproved of her solitary way of life, they none the less respected her ability. When festivals, weddings, and funerals came, she was first asked to prepare the dresses, and then to sing. Eventually her independence was ignored, because it had no cure. She named her son Astrea after his father. She thereby earned the rebuke, Stranger, from all those who could not pronounce it. As he grew, the villagers were civil to the boy they called Strea. They were not vindictive folk but they instinctively knew that he was not one of them, from his outlandish name to his angular face to his grey-green eyes and curly black hair. Whether of himself, or from the solitary ways of his mother, or because of the villagers' reaction to him, Astrea grew apart from other children of his own age. As he grew up, Alanna seldom spoke of the sea, as if she could somehow avert its threat by ignoring it. For her the sea was both less and more fearsome than it seemed to the other women of the village, less in that it had brought the stranger to be her husband, more in that it had taken him away again. She lived in fear that it would also take her son. That fear gave power to the songs she sang about the salt spray and the heave of waves that tore families apart. From her husband Alanna had heard of other destinations, other folk, different ways. She had kept his writings, even though she had never read what he wrote. Some of the more credulous women in the village might have been afraid of the sheets of paper and pressed birch-bark on which the stranger had written and drawn. Others would have used the collection as a fire-starter, unaware of its significance. A few might have held a more ceremonious bonfire. Death, fear, and the unknown were three strands of a dark rope that wound around the minds of almost all the villagers, tying them to the past. They clung to custom, lest they be overcome by the terror of a sea that had torn sons, lovers, and husbands from every family. Though Alanna was much more independent of thought and action than they, she was none the less one of them and thus affected by how they thought. Her compromise had been to keep her husband's writings, unread, in a leather-bound oaken box, where they were separate from her everyday life and that of her son. Year after year, as Astrea grew, the lid of the box stayed closed, and her memories of his father became coloured by the villagers' increasingly distorted versions of the stranger's short sojourn with them. At first she tried to correct their impressions, then she fell silent, then she avoided them all as much as possible, and concentrated on raising her son. 
While the other mothers cared for and minded each other's babies and toddlers, Alanna kept Estrella apart. She knew that the older villagers saw the black-haired boy as different from their own sons, and so she avoided both their glances and whispers. The distance between her and the other mothers increased as the village children of his age began walking and talking, which meant that Estrella's infrequent meetings with other boys and girls were shaped by the behaviour of their parents. The adults did not deliberately treat Estrella badly, but by drawing attention to the differences between him and other boys, they influenced their children, who turned looks into insults and words into bullying. When Estrella was seven, a dozen or so of the smiths came down from the mountains where they mined and worked the metal needed by the village boats and homes, and the teasing took a new turn. The smiths, who all seemed to be of the same family, were as black-haired as Estrella, though most of them were short and stocky. Unlike the village sailors in hair and skin colour, their way of life was apparent in their clothes and habits as well. Where the village men stood tall and looked up to the sky and winds they dealt with every day, the smiths were bent from digging underground, and blackened from the charcoal with which they smelted iron into steel. Men and women alike wore leather clothes, tanned almost black, and most were marked by fire or tattooed by fragments of ash and molten metal. The villagers traded with the smiths for their iron and steel, but made a show of being sea-scrubbed clean by ostentatiously wiping their hands after each transaction. The smiths accepted both the trading and the insults with stolid faces. But Estrella, who had snuck down to the shore out of curiosity, could see that their resentment closely resembled his own dislike of being singled out for teasing. "'So, Steria, your folks are here,' said one of the village sailors, in a heavy-handed attempt at wit, and soon the joke had been repeated over and over. "'You going back up country with your family, Estrella? Or are they glad to get rid of you?' The question was offered in the presence of the smiths themselves, as they set out their wares on the wharf, where skippers and wives alike could barter rope, cloth, and salt fish for knives, shackles, pots, and rollocks. The eldest of the visitors stared at him, grunted something nobody understood, and turned away. "'See, Straya, nobody wants you. You're dirtier than a smith!' shouted a red-haired boy of Estrella's age. A handful of village children picked up the chant, "'Dirty Smith! Dirty Straya! Dirty Smith!' and pushed him towards three of the younger smiths, who were boys on their first trip down from the mountains. They promptly pushed back, sending Estrella reeling back and forth from one group to the other until he had fallen and picked himself up several times. Eventually, parents on both sides ordered all of them to stop, more out of annoyance than compassion. When Estrella came home dirty and bruised, Alanna was not convinced by his reply. It was just a game. When she pressed him for more details, something in Estrella would not let him complain. When she cautioned him against fighting, he took the advance to heart, and determined that he would not react to taunting. But in the months and years that followed, whenever the slights and insults focused on her, it was too much for words, or even silences, and he threw himself at even the largest of his tormentors. Time and again he returned with grazes, cuts, 
dirty clothes, and the same excuse in which neither of them believed. When Skarm saw that Astraea was being constantly bullied, he first tried to remonstrate with the mothers and fathers of the boys who were making his life miserable. When this proved ineffective, he realized that in saving Astraea the father, he had also incurred a duty towards Astraea the son. Skarm knew that to intervene directly would lead to more bullying as soon as he was out of sight, so he looked for another way, and found one that solved a problem of his own. Skarm's injured arm had worsened with the years until it kept him from pulling his weight at sea. Determined to be useful, he began the task of teaching the village lads and girls how to read a little, to write at least their names, and to count enough to reckon the day's catch, if boys, and the tally of a knitted row, if girls. As he warmed to his self-appointed task, Skarm found that Astraea thought differently from the other children. He had been conceived, born, and raised apart from the community, but there was more than just the sum of these differences that distinguished him from those of his own age. Skarm saw curiosity and intelligence on the first day of school, but when the first class was over he looked out of his window and saw a circle of boys teasing Astraea, who struggled to follow his mother's wish that he refrain from fighting. "'Don't your ma make you wash your hair?' Knowing that any answer would make them laugh, Astraea compressed his lips and said nothing, which made them sure that he thought them stupid, which made them resentful. They soon tired of repeating the question and found another. "'With eyes like yours, does everything look green to you?' Skarm recognized Astraea's dilemma. As he watched unseen, Astraea did not reply, which meant that they laughed anyway. The more he avoided them, the more they persisted, and the more unpleasant grew the questions. "'You as ugly as your da?' Astraea's face set in a scowl, and Skarm guessed what would happen next. "'Why'd your ma have a stranger son? She stupid? Or weird? Or what?' Then the fighting began. They took turns, but because Astraea was lean and light and outnumbered, he was the one who suffered most. He lost that day. But the next, Skarm supplemented Astraea's schooling with private instruction in wrestling blocks, throws, and holds. Astraea was unexpectedly apt, learning how to use his skill and speed to overcome their strength. Perhaps because fighting distressed his mother, maybe out of something that he found in himself, Astraea perfected the art of inflicting a stalemate on his oppressors. As time went on, none of the village boys was willing to try a fall with Astraea, because though he never won a wrestling bout, he also never lost. Something in his nature or upbringing kept him from triumphing over another person. The villagers found this reticence beyond strange. They understood fights where one won and another lost. They had no words for a third outcome. If Skarm spent more time with Astraea's education than with the other boys, it was not only out of a duty to the man he had saved, but also because the boy had a hunger to learn, the like of which seldom affected the youth of the village. Astraea mastered the basic skills faster than the other young people of his age, and when they left Skarm's tutelage, all of them convinced that they were adequately schooled, Astraea was unsatisfied. He consumed the few texts from which he was taught, and when he asked for more, 
Skarm introduced him to his private hoard of books, preserved from before, cautioning him that some of the villagers would burn them, as their grandfathers and great-grandfathers had done. Astrea learned the clean logic of mathematics, but he was captivated by stories of brave men who had amazing adventures on land and sea, and who won the hearts of beautiful women. The combination of logic and romance distanced Astrea from the young people of the village, and made him long for nameless places. Elsewhere, he called them, although he never used the word to anyone. Elsewhere, for Astrea, held exactly the opposite feelings that the villagers attributed to before and away, those places and times about which their forefathers had deliberately forgotten. Astrea's elsewhere was a land of heart's desire, all the more attractive for the fact that he knew in the logical part of his mind that its perfection could not possibly exist. Astrea knew that the tales from before came from a time deliberately forgotten. He learned not to ask questions of villagers who did not speak or think about a long-past age when ships had traded all manner of things and ideas, and people had travelled to and from the village. Skarm let Astrea discover that long ago the villagers had rejected the outside world, thrown away everything that reminded them of it, and thereby frozen themselves in time along with their descendants. Astrea tried to understand what Skarm told him of their anger at being abandoned, but he tempered his criticisms when Skarm spoke of the way that the villagers' ignorance and superstition were balanced by their courage, loyalty, and steadfastness. When Astrea turned his attention to away, asking Skarm about what was over the horizon, in particular where his father had come from, the old man was less helpful both because he knew so little, and also because he was not sure about the truth of what Astrea's father had told him. Neither Alana nor Skarm could or would answer Astrea's questions about the world beyond the horizon from which his father had come. As he grew, he still respected both of them, but he also became aggrieved at their reticence. When it began to matter to Astrea that girls were different from boys by more than the length of their hair and the fact that they wore skirts instead of breeks, shepherds visited the village. Each autumn, for as long as he could remember, he'd seen one or two men come down from the mountains, carrying bales of wool on their shoulders, to sell to the village women. This time a group of three, clearly a family, arrived at Alana's door early one morning when the wild geese were strung out across a wind-swept autumn sky. When Alana opened the door, Astrea stared at three faces he had never seen before, and they stared back. The man was stooped under a huge bale of wool, his face almost invisible under a shapeless leather hat. His wife, beside him, had a smaller load that allowed her to hold her head higher, showing a pleasant face, darkened by wind, weather and travel. The face of the girl beside her caught and held Astrea's attention. Villagers' faces were oval, their heads roughly egg-shaped, whereas hers was round, with a wide forehead and high cheekbones. She returned his stare out of large brown eyes that looked out between strands of dark, travel-tangled hair 
held by a leather ribbon above her black eyebrows. As the focus of Estrella's eyes widened to take in the rest of her, he blushed to notice that the fastenings on her leather vest did not entirely close, revealing the hollow between her breasts. "'Land's wool for your spinning wheel,' said the man, his voice slow and deep, like someone who spoke seldom. "'Enter, rest, and we will speak of what we may exchange,' said Alanna politely. The three looked first at her and then at each other, surprised by her hospitality, which was not what they had encountered from the other villagers. The girl's brown eyes swiftly returned to Estrella. They all sat down at Alanna's table and bargained her completed cloth garments for their raw wool. The woman was entranced by the excellence of Alanna's needlework, caressing the garments with her fingers as her man frowned, lest her enthusiasm lessen his chances in the bargaining. Meanwhile, the girl's eyes did not leave Estrella's face. Her lips were slightly parted, giving Astrea a glimpse of white teeth and the tip of her tongue. When he held the plate of Alanna's cookies towards her, she solemnly took one and ate it, still regarding him without changing her expression. Unnerved by this attention, Astrea could think of nothing to say, so he sat, uncomfortably stealing glances at her, unable to wrench his attention away. At last the bargaining was over. Alanna shook hands with the shepherd, and they parted, he with a handful of coins, his wife with a blouse and a skirt. Both she and the couple smiled their satisfaction. The girl and Estrella continued to stare at each other until the three shepherds took up their packs and went on down the path to try their luck in the rest of the village, leaving Alanna and Estrella with a pile of wool to sort, wash, and dry. Unnoticed by Estrella, Alanna had seen how the girl's eyes had locked onto his, and she sadly recognized that she would no longer be the only female presence in his life. That she had long known this would happen some day did not make the end of Astrea's childhood any easier for her to bear. For the rest of that day, and for many after it, Astrea's thoughts were in turmoil when he thought of the girl. Even though he had seen her only for a few short moments, he had been ready to go with the girl to the mountains, to the place where the outcasts lived, shunned by the village. He was shocked by the impulse, because it would have meant the end of his hopes to sail with the village fleet. As time went by, he no longer was disturbed by this moment of irrationality. However, out of the encounter came a resolution that none of the village girls would ever steal away his ability to think as had the nameless girl from the high country. But he still cherished the memory of when their stares had gone far beyond mere looking, and from then on he no longer cared so much about being excluded from the community in which he lived. He had a conviction that even if there were no real elsewhere, he would some day find his own somewhere, and perhaps someone who would understand. Eventually the village boys' voices deepened, and hair grew on their cheeks and chins. Estrella had learned to jig for squid, cut bait, salt and dry the catch, row or sail a dory, and tend main and jib sheets aboard a village fishing boat as handily as the boys of his own age. He'd also learned how to work with them, 
despite their ridicule and derision. Though he hated being called Blackhead, Outsider, or Stranger, he also felt a fierce pride in being his own self, whatever they thought and said. He had grown up among the villagers, but he was not one of them, and everyone knew it. You have been listening to the Astraea Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astraea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.